Hello and welcome, I'm your host Alex Housen and this is Right Medicine, a bi-weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Who's Alex, I hear you asking? I'm a former nurse, an academic, who's now a writer and researcher who creates and evaluates education content for health professionals and teaches medical writers how to enrich their continuing medical education writing niche. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Right Medicine is sponsored by CME Palooza, the bestest, wittiest and freest online conference for CME professionals. CME Palooza Fall is happening on Wednesday, October 19th with a full day of innovative education on a variety of topics you won't see discussed anywhere else. Check out all of the information at cmepalooza.com. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Housen and this is Right Medicine. I'm here today with Rueda Vakil. And we're here to talk about differences and similarities between continuing medical education, training, and other forms of education materials that writers are involved in creating. Welcome, Rueda. Thank you, Alex. Well, it's really good to see you. Please tell listeners who you are and what you do. So I'm a consultant. I do some speaking and I'm primarily a medical writer working in medical communications and CME. My background is as a benchtop scientist. So I got my master's in immunology at the University of Toronto and the Ontario Cancer Institute. It was a research-based master's. So I was in the lab from day one. And, uh, you know, had a thesis and defended that and all of that. I transitioned into medical education and communications about 21 years ago. And since then, I've been heavily involved in AMWA. I've also presented at the Alliance and MACME. I've been involved quite a bit with them as well. So I've now done, transitioned from, well, I'm working both in CME now and in sales training, but on the education side. So we still try to focus more on the, ed- I focus more on the education part of it than the promotional. And I think that's probably a common experience for a lot of writers to have their foot in more than one field, as it were, because it's not always easy to kind of ensure a steady stream of work from one particular field. Although I would argue that niching down and really kind of concentrating on one area, like you're doing in education, but different kinds of education is can be very valuable for, for writers, for medical writers. Can you talk a little bit more about how you actually made the move into writing education materials? Because I, I think this is something that that a lot of people who are interested in medical writing really chew over and struggle with? How do you make that leap? So it's actually quite fortuitous the way I kind of fell into medical writing. So as we know, like in grad school and even undergrad, the career counseling divisions of the universities don't really present this as you know, an option, at least when, when we went to school, it wasn't really, I didn't even know this field existed. And when I fell into it, I was like, oh my God, this is like the perfect thing for me. You know, I was a benchtop scientist. I love the science, but I'm a very social person. So I like talking to people. I like communicating. And I 
you know, as much as I talked to my mice, you know, and my cells, and they didn't respond. <laughs> so I said, I need to transition into something that's a little bit more, commu- you know, more communications. And I was actually at a job fair and I was standing in line. We had just recently bought our house and my commute to work was like over an hour. So I was going to, I was working at Roche at that time in Nutley and it was over an hour and I was like, I'm looking for something close to home. So I was standing in line. I believe it was for BMS because that's close to home, uh, you know, for again, another lab job. And kind of off to the side, there was a medical communications company and the HR person was standing there and she kind of signaled to me and I was like, well, I won't lose my space in line. I mean, I can go up to a doctor. I'm not even losing my space. I had my resume and I handed it off to her. And, and she's, she's like, okay, this looks interesting. Have you ever done medical writing? And I had done some medical writing when I was in grad school, kind of on the side for communications company called Ribosome Communications. And it was for a publication called Geriatrics and Aging. And it was more direct to consumer type, you know, for patients. It was a magazine that was in the doctor's offices. So I'd done a little bit of that. And I said, yeah, I kind of have. And she took my resume. And then the president of the company called me. And this was shortly after 9-11. And the main question he asked me is, are you scared about, are you scared of flying? you know, because we're going to have you travel for a lot of these meetings. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, I think it's safer to travel now than it ever will be, you know, ever has been. And I went in for the interview and I started working at this communications company. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know this field existed. It's very excited. I never looked back after that. I mean, after that, I shortly after that, I incorporated my own business and started freelancing, but I never looked back. So, and when you started freelancing, did you have a clear idea of the kind of materials that you wanted to write or the kinds of clients that you really wanted to focus on? I don't think anybody really does when they start off, because when you mm-hmm. start off, you're kind of almost desperate to do something. I had, I had met Brian Bass from AMWA when I was working at this medical communications company, and he had kind of mentored me along the way in terms of encouraging me even to freelance. And he said, if you ever decide you're going to freelance, you reach out, join AMWA. And I did. So I spoke to him a lot about, you know, what's good to get into. And most, most writers breaking into the industry do start off with needs assessments. I was very lucky. The first year when I incorporated, I got a lot of business from one client. So I ended up doing a lot of work for that client. But the mistake I did is I didn't look for other clients because I, you know, that I think the main thing for a lot of writers, especially when you transition from a full-time job is to understand that when you're freelancing, it's a business and you have to run it like a business. So you cannot, you know, just assume that your client is your employer. They're not your employer. They're a client and they should be one of many clients. Over the years, I learned that you really should have no more than 20 or 30% of your business come from one person because if anything happens, they change their mind. You just don't have work. And so I made that mistake, which I think a lot of rookie people, freelancers do, but I got so much work my first year from that one client. I just didn't bother marketing myself at all. And then their company didn't do as well uh, for whatever reason. And then I found that I didn't have any work. So that's the one thing I would definitely advise anyone getting into freelancing is diversify from the beginning. And it's hard to say no to so much work, but make sure that you are marketing yourself, you know, even when you have work. That's important. And I think we have to have an episode on marketing at, at, at some point. For, for sure, because that's an area that 
a lot of people who are not just writers, but instructional designers and other practitioners who are involved in the CME, CE community and who work freelance really, really struggle with. So thank you for sharing all that wisdom in in the first seven minutes of this episode. (laughs) When you realized you were going to have to do some work to find additional clients and, and you were thinking about marketing, how were you thinking about positioning yourself in, in, you know, as an education writer, as a training writer? And, and how do you see those two kinds of writing in terms of what's similar and different about them? So I guess there's two questions there. <laughs> so I see myself more as an education writer. I think one of the things that I found out as I network with people at AMWA is you have people or and, and other people in this field as well, whether it was MACME or ACCME as well. People enter this field from diverse backgrounds. So you have people who have a strong science background that entered this field, but you also have people who come from journalism or, you know, not as much of a science background. So I think that there are different opportunities for different people in the field, depending on what your background is. You certainly can learn science and you can learn how to write, you know, so you can kind of meld a bit of both of that depending on what area you enter with. But I think having a science background allows you to do more core education and get down into the nitty gritty, really into the weeds of, you know, analyzing clinical trials or, for example, looking at papers and picking positives and negatives of a study, which someone who just has a journalism background may struggle a little bit more with doing. So I decided to leverage my scientific background more and position myself in that way. And I think that has helped you know, kind of discern me from other people who are in the field and has given me different kind of opportunities too. Can you say more about those opportunities? So I, I, I tend to do a lot of, like I said, I do education. I've, I've moved into a lot of sales training now and I'm finding myself really getting into the nitty gritty because what happens a lot with, with sales training is even on the client side, a lot of the people that are at the pharmaceutical company, for example, don't really have a strong science background. They're sales training people, right? So many times they don't even know what resources to provide or, you know, the nitty gritty of the data that I'm analyzing or developing for them. So I've learned to to leverage my background, which they really do appreciate. I've had a lot of people from the pharmaceutical company specifically ask for me as a writer because I, I'm not, you know, scared to push back and tell them, well, no, I don't think this is what you're asking me to do here is correct. This is the data this is where we should get the sourcing. We should cite it to this particular paper. We should cite it to this presentation. You know, that what, you know, what you're asking me to add here is not citable. I can't add it. So pushing back a little bit, you know, is important, I think. Um, it's something I think a lot of people do struggle with. And, you know, I, I do a little bit as well. But the times that I have sort of humbly try to express my opinion on something, it, it has been so well received that now I'm a little bit more confident in pushing back. And I think that's important. And your clients see will see you as a trustworthy source of... They, um, they see a value in that. And yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And what you're talking about speaks to, you know, the concept of fair balance, which mm-hmm. is 
you know, something we're very familiar with in the continuing medical education, continuing education world. But it sounds as though you're really applying that concept in the world of sales training as well. Absolutely. So the transition to sales training was always a little concerning to me because I'm very married to the pure science and I believe in, you know, representing the data the way it is. And that's the reason I stayed in CME for so long. But, you know, as all medical writers do, we need to diversify and expand. And as I entered the sales training industry, I wanted to make sure I maintain that. So, um, you know, I've been actually quite surprised at how receptive, you know, the the client has been for removing promotional stuff. And I think the medical department at the pharmaceutical companies, maybe after Purdue Pharma and how much trouble they got into and dope sick and all of that, are certainly more aware. I mean, I recently um, was in a med legal review where they were asking for for a simple statement such as, you know, complicated pill regimens are hard for patients to follow. And I was like, wow, that's like a general information thing, but I'm so glad you're asking for a paper to support that. So that, so I really think, and, and some of the more recent medical legal reviews that I've been on have been focused on, well, where's the data? Where's the supporting information for this? Is it published? You know, I, you know, we need to cite the published information or something presented at, at a meeting, for example, and where exactly is it in that publication? I really like that. I think that's a good sign. You know, so something came out of Purdue. <laughs> no, I, I agree, actually. I, I think it is a good sign. And, and you know, over the years, I've worked a fair amount on advisory board meetings and mm-hmm. and some speaker bureau trainings as well, which is a close family resemblance to sales training, although it's slightly different. And And what I've been finding as well is that there is a much more concerted effort from medical legal review to really make sure that any ambiguous claims are tightened up and you know linked to something that can substantiate the claim. So I, I think that is kind of hopeful and interesting. It is, what is also interesting, and I wonder if this is your experience as well, is that often you'll find pushback from marketing to yes. really kind of <laughs> massage and finesse the word choices in ways that can sometimes be uncomfortable for medical writers. And it sounds as though you're doing a really great job in using your science background to kind of push back to the pushback. I wonder if you have any advice for medical writers who perhaps, and you mentioned it yourself, you know, we all have that struggle of pushing back Do you have any advice for medical writers in terms of how they might do that in a way that leaves them not, doesn't leave them feeling depleted? (laughs) So I think one of the things that does help, so you're going to get mainly pushback from brand, you know, and then it goes back to medical legal after that normally, and legal, medical legal will often support or ask for what you knew should be there in the first place, right? So... What I've started doing is when I get the pushback from brand, I mentioned to them that, sure, I can put that in, but just so you're aware, that is not substantiable with any published data and really sounds promotional and it will be cut back in medical legal. So, you know, and sometimes they're like, oh, okay, so maybe we won't put in. Sometimes I don't know, we want it in. 
like, okay. And then when it goes to medical legal and it's cut back, they know. They, they see that. And then I can use that as an example if they want me to add the similar statement in the future. Well, yeah, I added it last time, but you remember medical legal cut it. I can add it again, but you know, they did cut it last time. So, so just setting up the history with the client over time, I think will build the confidence that the client will have on you. Initially, you'll definitely have more pushback, especially from brand. But as they see that some of the advice you're giving really comes through in medical legal, you know, they will begin to not push back as much, hopefully. <laughs> I think that's, that's really great advice. And I can hear the calmness in your voice and the, the firmness in your voice that I'm sure you use with, with clients as well. And that can only be a win-win situation for both you and for, for them. So thank you for sharing that. We talked a little bit, or you mentioned earlier on, about the importance of needs assessments. So I just want to kind of switch gears a little bit to focus on what needs assessments, the role that they play as kind of key elements of defining not only education, but also sales training, you know, and maybe that needs assessment looks a little bit different. What do you see as the best way to approach needs assessments in both these areas? So I think one of the things with needs assessments is they've evolved a lot in the last 20 some years. I remember when I first entered medical education, our needs assessment was, oh, just pull up a paper, you know, that's published that kind of talks about, you know, these issues. What issues? Oh, issues in this area. That's it. You know, that's all we would submit is just a published paper. We wouldn't sit down and try to define gaps and learning objectives and all of the stuff that we do now. So I really like the way needs assessments have evolved now. I think they're headed in the great in, in the right direction where they're focused more on gaps. You know, needs assessments even before now used to be focused on just learning objectives. So you would have your client give you learning objectives and say, OK, now develop the needs assessment. Yeah, but this learning objective has to be based on a gap. You know, so, and and I'm using the term gap, I'll define it. I think it's important to define it up front so, you know, people understand it. So the way, the way it is defined is, I think there is a proper ACCME definition. So it's a professional practice gap. And according to the ACCME, when it's a gap, when there's a gap between what the professional is doing or accomplishing compared to what's achievable, based on current professional knowledge. So that is something I think we really need to keep in mind as we develop needs assessment. So it's a difference between what is observed and in practice and what is potentially achievable based on what's out there. And so if I, I literally try to think of it as two different boxes when I'm writing a needs assessment. So and and so it's the transition to that that is your needs assessment. So the gap is foundational to developing needs assessments. How do you uh, approach the process of developing a needs assessment in relation to the different elements that are required in 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 a needs assessment? So it depends on what's provided. Sometimes needs, needs assessments are written a, according to an RFP that a pharmaceutical company puts out. So I usually take a look at the RFP and kind of try to see what areas they want to have education in. I think the best way to approach a needs assessment, though, is to 
to base it, to look at outcomes data from previous programs that a company, a med ed company has done that are similar, that is a similar program. Because I think that can provide you a great source of gaps. Because if you have done an educational program in it and then you have outcomes data, you can say, oh, well, they clearly, you know, need more education in this, that, and the other. And that can be the basis of your needs assessment. When I when I try to think of gaps, I, I try to put them in three different categories. So there's an inferred gap, a verbalized, which is a verbalized gap, which is more learner defined, which is like evaluation forms and surveys, and then gaps that exists from statistics that are available. So an inferred gap is usually something like, for example, if there's a new treatment guideline that came out or a new, you know, a new class of medications or novel technologies in diagnosis or biomarkers, for example, those are all things that need that, you know, physicians need to be educated from on. So that's an inferred gap. Verbalized gaps, I think, are the strongest form of gaps because they're learner-defined that you would get from your outcomes, data, evaluation forms, surveys, even requests for education. The RFPs, for example, have verbalized gaps. And then you have gaps from statistics. That's just epidemiological data, morbidity and mortality stats for a particular disease. Even if you go into the professional society uh, pages for the therapeutic area you're looking at, they have identified gaps there. Mm-hmm. So those are different ways of looking at gaps and where you can derive information for them. And it, it does certainly seem to be the case that there are more sources of potential gaps available to consult now when writers are engaged in, in developing needs assessments and the kind of needs assessment that we're talking about here is a kind of fairly traditional, I think, written document that is going to be used to support a request for funding, you know, an education activity or, or program by uh, some education provider. You mentioned medical education companies, but, you know, it could be a, a medical society or some kind of association. Are you involved in any other kinds of needs assessments or familiar with any other kinds of needs assessments? Perhaps in the in the training world, do you know instructional designers, for instance, always say there has to be a needs assessment for, you know, to develop any kind of, of, of training? What are you seeing in that side of your work that people might talk about in terms of a needs assessment? So I haven't really done needs assessments and sales trainings per se. All the needs assessments I've done are for CME. I've done mostly sales training modules and infographics and things like that for sales training, which have already, I guess, defined a needs for that. And do you get access to the kind of information that they've already sort of defined and and laid out to guide the development of the sales training? Not always, no. 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 Okay. So you're kind of starting from scratch there. Usually. <laughs> developing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So implicitly developing a, a needs assessment as a foundation for developing the sales training materials. I'm yeah. I think it becomes integrated, especially when you're developing right. a module, right? So right. It, it, it is because you have to provide the disease background. You have to talk about the, you know, the, the agents available and things like that. So that is kind of what we end up doing in a needs assessment. So I think that it becomes a part of what I develop, but isn't, you know, something I develop separately. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for, for clarifying that. You mentioned 
when we were talking earlier, you talked about that distinction between educational and promotional material. How do you manage that balance in in the work that you do? You know, you talked a little bit about pushback. Are there other things that you're kind of looking out for when you're working in these in these two different areas? So one of the things you have to recognize is that when you're when you're working in sales training, you're obviously going to be talking about your client's product more and positioning it in a certain way that you won't be positioning if you're doing CME. So there's definitely an implicit promotional nature to it. You know, when we're dealing in CME, we always have to make sure everything is balanced. You know, when you're doing a sales training module, yes, you will mention competitor products, but you will still focus more on your client's products. So I think that is the main distinction I find. And as a medical writer that's focused on maintaining the scientific integrity of all the documents I work on, the main thing I have to make sure of is that as long as it's citable and it is something that, um, you know, has been published and is verifiable to me, I'm comfortable with that because I understand sales training is sales training. Right, right. It's, so. it's, it's qualitatively distinct. And you're talking about sources of evidence, things that are published, things that are citable. What do you recommend as good resources or good sites for medical writers and other practitioners involved in developing needs assessments to look at to support a really kind of robust assessment? So definitely, I think that a good medical literature review is absolutely important wherever citable to peer-reviewed publications. So you want to look on PubMed specifically. Not all publications are listed on PubMed, but the ones that are listed are more reputable. Uh, So it is important to try to see as much as possible that your medical literature review is from sources that are listed on PubMed. They are professional society pages, like as I mentioned before, as a great resource for looking at statistics. And you can even look at some of the other programs that, that they have developed and they identify a lot of needs on those society pages. And then, of course, there are statistics and trends in healthcare, which you can, you know, get from lots of different sources as well. Their clinicaltrials.gov is another great site. I think that's very, very important because when you're writing a needs assessment or even sales training, you want the latest, you know, clinical trial information for that product. And it's not always published. So you can get at least the, you know, the study and how it was set out and a lot of that basic information from clinicaltrials.gov. They oftentimes do list references, but I found that's not really comprehensive because many times something has been published and they won't list it there. And then, of course, you know, going to, I work a lot in oncology. So ASCO and ESMO abstracts and presentations are a great resource as well. And ASCO abstracts are published and freely available in the Journal of Clinical Mm -hmm. Oncology. So those kind of things, I think, are a great source. And you mentioned earlier that you appreciate the way that needs assessments are evolving. Can you speak a little more to that? Well, I love the fact that they focus more on gaps. You know, it used to really irk me when when a client would give me learning objectives and say, okay, develop a needs assessment. I'm like, well, where are these derived from? Like, did you just like get them off the top of your head? Like this, I, what am I supposed to write here? So I really like that. So then that's usually, and it's not like it doesn't happen now. You'll still have clients give you learning objectives, but then you have to, you know, step back and say, okay, I see the objective. Let me see if I can, if I have a gap to substantiate that. And I find that clients are, 
you know, being more educated on what is a needs assessment. And, you know, we have, I've developed material for AMOR, for example, on how to write a needs assessment. I've co-authored a learning guide, which is available at AMWA. We have, I've worked with Don Harding and we've done presentations at the Alliance as well on how to develop needs assessments. I have done presentations on my own at MACME on how to develop needs assessments, defining gaps and stuff. So it really has been an education and understanding what is involved in developing needs assessments. And those are now citable. So I can bring that back to a client and say, well, you know, this is sort of best practices. Dawn has been doing surveys for years and, you know, mm-hmm. those are citable as well. These are the way, this is the way that it should be written. And and I think, again, this, this goes back to the pushback that a writer does have to do with the client. I think it, I think when you, when you have sources to back yourself up, you know, you feel a bit more confident in in pushing back a bit. And I think you'd be surprised at how clients value you when you just don't say, oh, I'll just do it just the way you like and no pushback. You know, I think it's important. Because part of the value is they learn too. And, exactly. and so I'm kind of wondering, you know, how much, you know, you mentioned that you're finding that clients are more educated around needs assessment. How much of that education have you been doing for your clients? So, I mean, I definitely do sometimes when I, when I working with a new client, I will send them some of the resources that I have developed, for example, like the poster that we won at the Alliance, the award for and the survey data. And I do have a little bit of the learning resource on AMWA that I can provide as well as a sample. And I think that providing that information up front also validates me as a needs assessment writer and helps them understand what's involved in that. And then, you know, we talk about templates and if they have templates and if they have a style that, you know, they prefer that I use, you know, those are all, it all becomes part of that initial conversation. And we'll make sure to uh, link some of those citable sources in the show notes so that listeners can get access to the work that you've done in this in this area. Are there any other things that we haven't touched on in relation to either needs assessment specifically or the approach to developing materials for continuing medical education, continuing education in general? I think we've talked about, we've touched on a lot of different things. I think it's really important for writers to remain current in their area. So, you know, you always have that, you know, down downtime between projects and things like that. So I think it's important to remain current in your area. If you've worked with a client before and you know they're a repeat client, try to bring value to your relationship with them. For example, you know, I have a client that regularly updates, you know, data from their for, for their client based on ASCO and ESMO, for example. And so if I am able to tell them, oh, yeah, you know, I know this pharmaceutical company is going to be releasing data at ASCO or ESMO, we should probably think about updating this resource or that resource, you know, that gives them a heads up and, and then adds value, adds, you know, makes them see me as a more valuable contributor, and then they would come to me for that. So, and that's good for when you have downtime and you, you know, you know, you're looking for more projects rather than reaching out to a client and saying, oh, I'm available for more work maybe try to think about the kind of work that they need, you know, and, and say, well, you know, I know this, this is coming up. You'll need to update this. I'm available if you need me to, you know, that kind of thing. And now you've provided them with something that they can 
now get paid for because they can go out to their client and say this is a need. And it's it's shown them some value for you as well. That's a fantastic tip. I'm I think a lot of new to the field writers are probably a little bit cautious about that kind of approach, but it works. And it's a form of generosity. And as you say, you you increase the value that you're bringing to not only your client, but to the field of continuing medical education and continuing education in general. Rueda Vakil, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with us on Right Medicine. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Alex. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And thank you so much for inviting me to be on. I appreciate it. As you can tell, Rueda is a highly experienced writer of needs assessments and has developed an effective system for ensuring that these kinds of CME-CE deliverables are framed by fair balance. Detailed gaps in clinical practice describe the likely education required to address those gaps and foreshadow the anticipated outcomes that education could generate. Her professional trajectory is somewhat typical of many writers working in the CNE-CE field, coming from bench science, but like many Right Medicine guests, as a bench scientist, she was unaware that CNE-CE was even a career option for people who want to meld science and writing. I think on this episode, Rueda shared many valuable lessons for people considering a move into CME-CE writing or for CME-CE writers who are considering working freelance. For instance, establishing a CME-CE writing niche can be highly rewarding and sustainable, especially if you niche down even further by establishing yourself as an expert in writing needs assessments direct energy into marketing yourself as a CME-CE writer to ensure a steady stream of valuable and valued clients. Working with marketing experts such as Laurie DeMilto and Elise Bennon of Marketing Mentor, necessary business investments for freelancers. Develop relationship management skills. This can only help you as a CME-CE writer or as a planner, designer, strategist in education or in sales training. It's essential for those moments when you know you need to challenge the basis for claims that are being made for content and to help you stand your ground for fair balance and content integrity. Rueda also pointed us to many credible and trustworthy sources for identifying clinical or professional practice gaps beyond PubMed, including professional society websites, clinicaltrials.gov and conference abstracts. In fact, Rueda has generously shared a range of resources for listeners, which you can access in the show notes. And Rueda emphasized the importance of using downtime to remain current in your specialist area. You can always share new insights with clients and position yourself as a valuable partner in their work. Thanks for listening to this episode. As always, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and the podcast in general. Which topics would you like to hear more about and who would you like to hear from? You can email me, write a podcast review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen on, and also use SpeakPipe direct from the podcast page on my website. 
And if you haven't yet joined the Right Medicine community, there's a link to join in the show notes. As a thank you, you'll receive downloadable bonus content from the show. And finally, in response to the many questions I get about writing needs assessments, I'm offering a four-week hands-on workshop on writing needs assessments that's designed to support deliberate practice with expert feedback. When is this happening? On Mondays at 12 noon Pacific time from October the 31st to November the 21st. Let me know if you have questions and when you're ready to register, you can do so via a link in the show notes where you'll also find more information about what to expect for each week of this workshop. Until next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine.